The following sermon was preached at Redeemer Church in Tumball, Texas. For more information, go to makingmuchofjesus.org. All right, it's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, and in the midst of all of their issues and all of their problems and all of their struggles and all of their disobedience, it's amazing at the same time that the Holy Spirit is writing to you and to me. This is the beautiful thing of the Bible. Written to real people in a real city at a real time, and through the supernatural power of the risen Christ, these words are written directly to us today. And I, you know, I really like when, when Pastor Barry preaches. Uh, he always does a great job, and he, I really enjoy, he has everyone stand when we read the Bible. And I know a lot of traditions and other pastors do that, and I always go, and every time he does it, I go, man, I love, I love that. And then I, I, it never comes to me in this moment to go, well, why don't I do that? Um, because when we read the Bible, we're not just reading ancient words on a page. It is the power of Christ. It's as though Jesus is speaking directly to us. And Jesus is among us, Revelation says, walking among his churches. And so in honor of Christ, in honor of his word, let's stand together and read 1 Corinthians, uh, starting in chapter 2, down through verse 5. And the Bible says, And I... When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You may be seated. Once you have had really good coffee, it's hard to go back to bad coffee. And I know to some of you, every kind of coffee is bad coffee. And we're praying for you. We're grieved by you. Um, We're praying for your transformation. I I used to not like coffee very much, uh, I mean, at all. Even when I worked at Starbucks, it feels like eons ago, I worked there for four years, and I did not like coffee then. Uh, The frozen desserts they serve, sure. I mean, that's not coffee. You can't say, oh, I'm going to go get my coffee. That is a frozen cheesecake blended up and you're you're not drinking coffee but regardless coffee no way black coffee that was never going to happen and i remember guys here at the church who i thought were my friends would make fun of me incessantly by adding cinnabon coffee creamer to my coffee i'm like what's wrong with that um now i see what's wrong with that but back then black coffee tasted like a boiled rock it tasted like someone was making tea with mulch But, but then some of my friends, when I was in seminary, they, they took me to this one coffee shop in Louisville. And there, I, it's like I had, I had never tasted coffee like that before. I could drink it black, and it, it didn't taste like geological elements. It, it, it had flavors. I could taste a sweetness, and then it changed to kind of this really smooth. I mean, it was, it was a new thing for me. 
and now I am a complete coffee snob. I mean, total, unabashed, card-carrying coffee snob. And the church staff can testify. We've been in a meeting, and someone made coffee, and I went and got some, and I took a sip and went, that ain't going to work, and I just poured it all out. Like, I, I, can't, I can't do it anymore. It just tastes like hot water. And once you've had really good stuff, I, I just refuse to go back. You don't settle anymore. And, and really, guys, when, when you have seen, and with the eyes of faith, the, the amazingness of Christ crucified and risen from the dead, everything changes. I mean, when you have really been floored by Christ, by the gospel, and I, I mean like Jesus is blowing you away that you can't, you can't even explain the, the way that you feel, the way that you think, and the way that you're processing your life in that moment that you're a, a puddle of tears in your car as you're just listening to a song. That you're sitting in your house reading your Bible and all of a sudden you cannot explain how you are so overwhelmed with the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you've been there, when you have really tasted and seen the amazingness of Christ, all that passes, all the junk that passes in our day for Christianity loses its flavor to you. You know that this doesn't cut it anymore. The entertainment-driven services and gimmicks, they don't do it anymore. You're not impressed by them. It doesn't excite you to have motorcycles on a stage jumping over you while you're preaching, which happens in this area. You aren't hindered in worship if it's a cappella music or if there's not enough hymns or if there are too many hymns. You aren't ultimately concerned with debating doctrine. You get tired of debating yoga pants and homeschooling and alcohol and you get sick of church growth techniques and and gimmicks. Once you have seen the amazingness of Christ, everything changes. And really, you don't even mainly decide what church to be a part of by the kind of music they do, by which service times fit your schedule the best, by what ministries they offer or don't offer, but by one thing, the one thing to look for, the ultimate chief supreme thing to look for in a local church is Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead there. That's all we're after. Is Jesus there? And I love in Tomball, in the Huffsmith area, over by Mel's, iconic Mel's Diner, there's a little dilapidated, broke-down church. It's probably about the quarter of a size of this building, which we have a great big building. So, you know, this is is not a big building, okay? I don't know if you caught my sarcasm. It's laying it on pretty thick. Their, Their building is like a quarter of this, really run down. I don't know much about this church. I don't, I don't know. But their sign, I've seen it say two things every time I drive by there. One of the things it says is, Jesus is here. And I drove by and I thought, hallelujah. And then I drove by recently again and it just said two things. Just Jesus, exclamation mark. That to me is more impressive than having snow fall down on your stage because you're doing a Frozen-themed sermon series. That's the kind of church I would want to be a part of. And if I'm looking for a church, I'm, I'm not me, I'm not this guy, Jeff Metter's pastor, I'm Art Vandalay or some, somebody else, whatever. 
and I'm, I'm looking for a place. There's only two options in my community, this church or that church. Okay, which one am I going to go to? Here's how I would evaluate. I would take a Jesus-loving, Jesus-heralding Arminian over a tulip-centric Calvinist every time. Every time. And does that seem odd? I don't think so at all. Because I know what I ultimately need, and I hope that you will perceive what you ultimately need is the plain preaching of Jesus Christ crucified and risen from the dead more than you need anything else. Once you have beheld Jesus Christ and him crucified, you will resolve to make him your main thing. It's exactly what Paul is doing, 1 Corinthians 2.2. When he goes into Corinth in Acts 18, and he's talking about his ministry and his whole ministry to them. You find this theme in really every New Testament epistle. He's saying, I decided to make one thing chief among you, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that is all I want for us. People talk about, you know, what do you want for a demon church? What do you hope? One thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified that we would know him more, that we would love him more, that we would want to see his cross more, that we would be blown away by him more, that we would want to follow him and make much of him more and more. I hope that 1 Corinthians 2, 2, and 3 will be our church's blood type. That if you were to pierce us, you were to prick us, and that what would flow out of us, what is flowing out of our church is this verse. We decide to know nothing else among us except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then look at the posture, verse 3. What kind of people? How how is Paul carrying himself? I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. That seems opposite of the way many Christians want to characterize themselves. The way a lot of pastors want to come across. The way a lot of churches want to be seen. Weakness, fear, when I was getting ready to preach a sermon, even driving up here and praying between services, I did have a lot of fear and trembling about this sermon because I know, I know that the, the kind of things that I'm going to say that, res, that are resolving from this text are going to be uncomfortable and I think, and I hope by God's grace, convicting in a good way. And that some people may get angry. And I'm okay with that. Because the point is to be faithful to the Bible and to Christ not our gimmicks, not our plans, not our dreams, and I'll be okay if I get an angry email. At least you're not pelting me with rocks like Paul would get. Weak people clinging to a strong Christ. And, and Ray Ortland, if you don't know him, I hope you will know him and his books and his writings and his sermons. And he's actually coming here uh, in Houston in March 20th and 21st with his wife, Janie. They're doing our True Marriage Conference, so definitely sign up for that. Uh, Ray, recently, he's in his 60s, he tweeted, okay, so he's in his six, so don't think when I'm talking about Twitter, like, oh, that's some youth, you know, young whippersnapper technology. You know, this guy's like 65, and he's tweeting, and he really encouraged, Lawson and I were actually talking about this tweet this week. He said, he's the pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville. He, here's his tweet. Tweet. Comment was made about Emmanuel Nashville overheard recently. Quote, one thing's for sure. They are real proponents of Jesus. That's beautiful. That's to be the kind of church where that's said about us, all kinds of things. Yeah, their pastor's really handsome, but (laughs) they, that place, they are real, real proponents of Jesus. Not just in talk, but in power. Jesus must be first to us. Our main desire, our main excitement, the God-man, Jesus himself. I mean, guys, our church and every church where Christ is named, we are filled and we are fueled by the power of the risen Christ. 
with resurrection power that you have and I have right now. So why on earth would any church, and why would we ever want to turn to these quick, these quick growth, quick schemes? The McMass Project. I don't know if you've heard of this. Has anyone heard of this, the McMass Project? Okay, hallelujah. I'm about to tell you about it, though. <laughs> They're a non-denominational group, and after seeing the decline of American churches, which is true, church in America is on the decline rapidly. While Christianity is growing exponentially and explosively in Africa and India, where about 15,000 people a day are coming to Christ. In South America and Brazil, churches are, are exploding. In Central America, exploding. In Harris County, as 2,000 people move on average to Harris County every week, so the population percentage is growing. The evangelical Christian percentage is declining. So this is true in our area. It's true across the United States. So this, these people, when they saw this, they said, how can we solve this problem? That's a good thing. How, how do we fix this? What do we do? Here's what they think. Their website says, we want to revitalize churches. I'm all for a revival. But how? And what do they say? We want to revitalize churches as centers for conversation and cultural engagement by putting a McDonald's franchise in a church. One of McMass's core members said, Christianity is unable to capture modern audiences. That's the same idiocy that was being said in the first century in Corinth. Our, this talk of a crucified and risen Christ this is not capturing our modern first century Greek audiences. We've got to do something else. Some churches want to pump in fog machines, and some churches want to pump in the smell of french fries. Now, I'm no church growth expert, but a Big Mac is not the answer to the American church's woes or anyone's for that matter. <laughs> Our churches are in great need of revitalization, of reformation, not under golden arches or gimmicks or slick services, but under the glorious gospel of grace. And Paul's writing the Corinthians and to us to be called out of the madness that we seek. They're seeking impressive wisdom. The Corinthians want to be impressed by speaking and by teaching. In Greco-Roman society, where the Corinth is, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but they didn't have Netflix then. They didn't have Blu-ray. They didn't have PS4s, Xbox One. They had no really entertainment like we do. Their entertainment, one of the chief ways of entertainment was coming to hear a speaker, which sounds like, what? <laughs> like some of you are struggling to even be here and like, People view that as entertainment? That's what they were doing? Yes, that's how sad it was then. But they had these famous orators and public speakers, and that would wow a crowd, not so much with what they're saying, but how they're saying it. How they would arrange, if you're familiar with some of these uh, Greek terminologies for speaking, of have their ethos, and they would have their, their pathos moments. They have all these ways to kind of wrangle in a crowd and then present to them, and they would just blow up the pyrotechnics of public speaking. This is what the Corinthians wanted. And Paul doesn't do that. Paul's very plain. Paul is very plain. And the Corinthians are saying, we want more of that. We want the entertainment-driven stuff. And, you know, bring in the Bible stuff. Bring in some Bible talk. Entertain us, Paul. And Paul is saying, I refuse to do that. I, I resolve to know one thing among you, Christ and him crucified. And in our day, in American churches, it's the service is entertaining. The dog and pony show. The lights, the camera, the action. Having a famous, well-known, best-selling pastor. People have their pet ministries that we've turned into golden calves and books about kids 
actually not going to heaven. And none of this almost has nothing to do with Jesus. Von Roberts, in his book, Authentic Christianity, a brilliant paragraph, when he says, a good test, therefore, of any movement, any message, any church, any book that claims to be spiritual is to ask, does this point me to the crucified Christ, encouraging me to grow in knowledge and love of him, to serve him, to imitate him? If not, so if it is not doing those things, it does not come from the Holy Spirit however impressive it may appear. We must be on our guard against any departure from my focus on Christ and the cross. Whether it's caused by a deliberate decision or a gradual drift, which flows from a form of spiritual amnesia. This is the American church today. And we, we, Redeemer Church, we are very capable of this if we are not careful. If we don't all stand guard. If we don't resolve to want to know one thing chiefly among the rest. This is what Paul's saying. I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And when he says that in verse 2, that doesn't mean we're not going to talk about anything else. So that's one way to hear it. Oh, I guess he didn't talk about anything else. No, clearly he talked about a lot else. We have pages of what he talked about. So what does this mean? It means that he never talked about anything with a division from Christ and him crucified. He didn't talk about, we don't talk about things in exclusion to Christ. We talk about everything in relation to Christ and him crucified, and risen from the dead. We can't talk about marriage without talking about Christ and the cross. We can't talk about our lives. We can't talk about prayer. We can't talk about serving. We can't talk about giving sacrificially, tithes and offerings. We can't talk about singing. Like Everything we experience in life is about Christ and him crucified. This is helping me grow in him. This is helping me to love him, to make much of him, to follow him. The Corinthians were distracted from the center. So right now, what are you and I looking to today for faith? John Piper commenting on this text, he said, it was possible in Paul's day, and I believe it is rampant in our day, in churches and TV and radio, to try to build faith by calling attention to the wrong things. So we need to build faith. We need to grow. But what do we call our attention to? To Christ to Christ himself. So what are you looking for? We all, we all have hurts in here. Varying levels. Pain, frustrations, difficulties in families, medical issues, anxieties, sins, baggage. Where, where are you looking for these things? When Paul says in verse five, chapter two, look at verse five. So that your faith, where's it supposed to be? Not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. A slick service cannot change your life. A book ultimately cannot change your life. A a devotional cannot change your life. What will do it is the power of God, which is only in 1 Corinthians and what we've read so far, it is Christ who became to us wisdom, sanctification, redemption, and the power of God. So what are you looking to today, right now? What what were you hoping for when you came here? You could ask it that way. What were you hoping for when you came to the doors? What what am I looking for? What do I want? Why am I here? I hope it's Hebrews 12, 
too while you're here, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What are you looking to? And as a church, as a pastor, we all must ask ourselves, what do we look for in our purpose for fruit, for, for growth? I was talking to some guys in between the service who were in the first service. I just said, you know, I really don't, I, I am not concerned with having a massive church and a big service of thousands of people where Jesus is not the center, where people are not enjoying Christ. I would rather have 12 people where Jesus is treasured and valued above all else. Because 12 people like that can flip the world upside down, according to the book of Acts. One thing I love about our church right now is that we basically meet in a trailer park. Think about our buildings. Trailer, trailer, trailer. I bet we have the least impressive building in our area. Nothing wrong with these trailers. It's what the Lord has given us. I love it. But I wonder seriously about our church and maybe about some of you that if we stopped doing, for example, if we just stopped doing music the way that we do music, the style, if we stopped doing the style of music that we do, would some people leave? I wonder if some of you would. And why? Why would that be? It's because you are not really here for Jesus. You're not really here for Christ and him crucified and risen from the dead. But you're ultimately here for yourself. Wanting the Corinthian entertainment. Wanting to know one thing, and it's not Christ and him crucified. I don't mean to be intrusive. I don't mean to be guilt-trippy. But this book is causing me to look deep into my heart and going, what are we really about? What do we really want to be about? What are we really after? What are we, what are we real? what is this whole, what is this about? Like, I don't want to get caught up in, we're just doing the church thing. That, that is not it. That is not what this is about. And we all must do the same thing. What is the one thing that we want most and want to know? So I'm committing, and I know our elders feel the same way as one of your pastors to keep Jesus Christ and him crucified as the grounds, the fuel, the hope, the main message and center of this church as best as we know how. And that's what Paul is doing when he says, I decided. So there was a decisive moment for him as he walks into Corinth. Am I going to act this way and do these kinds of things or am I going to keep Jesus central? This is a decision point. And we all must make this decision point. And I'm asking you to decide, to commit, to keep Jesus Christ and him crucified as your central focus, your blazing center, your glowing hub of your life, your desire, your longing, your all, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Like Fanny Crosby's old great hymn, take the world, just take it, but give me Jesus. Take it all, I don't care, you can have everything, just give me Jesus. And for all of us, it's decision time. So what, what do we need to do? Quickly, the first thing is we must reject the antic drivenness of our day. We must reject the antic drivenness of our day. This is verse one. 
Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the mystery or the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. And he, so those two concepts, lofty speech or wisdom. The lofty speech is the way he's saying it. The message is what he's saying. So he is saying, I'm not saying these things the way everyone else is saying things. I'm saying things very plainly, very clearly about Christ. Guys, the gospel is the extraterrestrial power in our churches. It's otherworldly. It's divine. It's been strengthening Christians, saving sinners, and changing cities for years, all without our improvements, all without our innovations, all without our manovations, all without recipes recipes for relevancy, all without trying to make the gospel look cool and, and trying to dress it all up. Jesus doesn't need any of that. Friends, what good is it to have a church that's, that has the most attractional services and most highly attended kids' ministries and yet loses their lampstand? Revelation 2, if you do not repent, therefore, then I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand. Jesus saying, I will shut the church down. We've seen this in our day. We've seen this in the past year. Mars Hill Church in Seattle. A 14,000-person attended church on average every week went to zero in six months. What, what is that? Jesus removed their lampstand. Shut it down. We can improve our hospitality ministries, and we can have cool graphics, and we could have great coffee, but these things don't rend the heavens. These things don't what make a church a great church. And our church, if we're not, we could be, we could subtly fall into them. Now that we have 10 acres of land, go, okay, now if we had this cool thing, we had this cool thing, and we, maybe if we had a full-blown coffee bar, and we had all this, like, those aren't, these aren't bad things. But they become bad things when we put our hope in these things. And so these are the things that will make a church a great church. Sticks and gimmicks and antics, they don't bring revival. They don't save. The last time I checked my Bible, a fog machine has never risen anyone from the dead. Only the Spirit of God flying behind the gospel does this. That's verse 4. Where's the real power? Why does Paul speak this way? Why does he decide to know nothing else except Christ and crucify? Why is he in weakness and fear and trembling? In verse 4, most of my speech and my message. Look at what he says. The way I'm speaking and what I'm saying were not implausible words of wisdom, trying to entertain, acting like the culture, but they were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Power comes from the Spirit. There wasn't any swagger in Paul. There wasn't any trying to impress and call attention to himself. He decided to know one thing. And guys, you don't have to know a bunch of things to be used greatly by God. You really only need to know one thing and be ready to make that one thing known at great cost and at great expense to yourself. The death of Christ on the cross, stapled naked to a tree, being whipped in blood, crown of thorns running down his body and blood puddling on the ground, blood crusted on his body that is saving us from our sins. Him laid in the tomb and him coming back out, not as some ghost, not as some hologram, not any of those things, but as a living, breathing God-man, now ascended, reigning in heaven next to the Father, forgiving anyone and everyone that is willing to look to him and believe. 
We must never move on from that. And we must never let anything eclipse him. We have to resolve to reject the antics of our day and resolve to gospel-centeredness. That's verse 2. I decide to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul didn't get caught up in all these other things. Paul could have been walking through a market and heard people talk about maybe this theory of this or that theory of that, and he doesn't chime in. He doesn't interject into these things. He does in Athens when he sees all these unknown gods that people are worshiping, and he says, no, I want to tell you about the one God. So he doesn't interject into all these other debates, all these other other things. What he does is he interjects with Christ and him crucified. So we, if, that, if Jesus is central, this means you don't get riled up and upset and all crazy about some Facebook debate. Then you do get riled up for the cause of Christ. This means we don't get anxious for who will sit in the Oval Office next year. Your main message in your life and in mine ought to be Jesus Christ and him crucified. Guys, the cross was so disgusting in the first century. No one wanted to talk about it. This is why in the Bible, all you see about crucifixion is, and they crucified him, period. No details. It's vile. No one liked to talk about it. That's why we have to go to secular historians and learn what was Roman crucifixion. So it was disgusting to talk about crucifixion. And Paul says, the crucifixion is my main thing. And not only just talking about crucifixion, but talking about my crucified God that I love, that saved me from all my sins. So it's one thing to talk about crucifixion, and it's another thing altogether to talk about a crucified God, a Savior, a Messiah, a King, a Lord. Imagine you're having a nice dinner. This is like the furthest, closest thing I can think of that would be as disgusting to compare. Talking about crucifixion at the market and then this, this scenario. Imagine you're having dinner or you're having coffee at Starbucks with a buddy, and y'all are talking, and you hear a table next to you, you hear this guy talking loudly and excitedly about this man who... He's a history teacher, maybe, some kind of teacher, but he was mauled to death by a pack of dogs. These dogs surround him, and, they are mauled, and he's describing how they, they bit him, they ripped off his flesh, and how they were getting to his inter- and like internal organs, like these kind of zombie dogs. And he's going on and on and on about the gruesome detail and how, how cool it was, how amazing it was. And he's smiling as he's talking about this. You would be going, this guy's a freak. That's exactly what Paul's saying when you talk about crucifixion, you sound weird. And we must embrace the weirdness. Paul refused to let anything else dominate his speech. And I'm sure it was annoying to people. That's why they pelted him with rocks, city after city. That's why he was stranded at days, for days at sea. That's why he was robbed multiple times on his journeys. That's why multiple times he received 40 lashes minus one on his back. Because Paul was a man of one subject. Of one subject, really. Of that which is of first importance. We'll read it later as we go through the series. But now in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, For I delivered to you, Corinth, and now to us, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Of first importance. So this doesn't mean of only importance. That's not what this means. First, in line, the head. The gospel is the alpha truth. 
of first importance. So if this is the most important thing to Paul, this is in the Bible, this is the most important truth in the Bible. And if it's the most important truth in the Bible, it's the most important truth to God. And it's the most important truth to God, it is the most important reality in the universe. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that by believing in him, you can be saved. Oh, that we would be an of first importance church. Not just in talk, but in power. So friends, what do you, what do you know the most about? What have you resolved to know the most about? To be an half central in your life. I know it seems old school and non-hip to say this, but your, your Bible reading really does show what is most central to you. How does your pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord, compare with the pursuit of all else? I've been guilty of this before, and I know that probably many of us are. But my great fear for doing ministry in the Bible Belt is that many of us are Christ's followers who are not concerned with actually following Christ. Are we people who say, yeah, I'm I'm total Christ follower. Okay, so how are you following Christ? Uh, Well, I don't read the Bible. I don't pray. I don't confess sin. I don't repent of sin. I'm not really committed to a local church. The, the, the Bible is not aware of that kind of Christ follower. Is Jesus central to you? It's your all. If you decided to do nothing else in your life except Christ and him crucified. Most Christians in America, they probably did not share the gospel last year. And some of you are probably thinking, yeah, there's not one person that I could say verbally, I told them the gospel, asked them to believe in Christ who I love. If that did not happen last year, I want to strongly tell you why it did not happen. It did not happen, not because you were too busy, not because you didn't have any opportunities. Those Those are all smoke screens. It did not happen because you have not decided to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified in your life. Plain, simple, that's it. But the hope is, these were written to free us, to liberate us from living in that kind of way and to live as the kind of people of truly one subject where it's totally clear what is coming out of our hearts. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. So when Jesus becomes, when Christ crucified becomes the abundance of our heart, he will not have to be forced. He will come out quickly and easily in conversation, and you won't even realize that you're actually evangelizing. You'll step back and go, oh, that was evangelism, what I just did. Huh. It just happens when Christ becomes your main subject. So what do you want to know most? And then let's just get even more personal into our life. What do you want your kids to know most? What is your greatest concern for them? Donald Miller in his new book, Scary Close, says, I'll be honest, my greatest fear is I will have kids who don't like me. I have a recurring nightmare that one of my sons would tell me what an awful dad I was right before I clutch my chest and keel over. That would be sad 
Francis Chan in a recent podcast said, it would break my heart if one of my kids said, I did not enjoy my childhood and I don't like my dad. But I could deal with that. What would be unbearable is if they didn't love Jesus. The thought of any of my children not being in heaven eternally, that's unbearable. That's devastating. Do I want them to love me more than I want them to love Jesus? Obviously, I want both. But if I'm going to choose, it's always going to be Jesus. It's a man who says, I have decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How different would our relationships be with one another if we decided to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified among us? Our small groups, our marriages, how different would they be if we decided that? Do you see why this is so important to Paul? Why it ought to be important to, to Corinthians? Why it ought to be important to us, Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas? That's verse 5. So that, there, there it is. Here's the purpose of verses 1 to 5. Here's the purpose. So that your faith, your, your faith, what you believe, Christ crucified, risen from the dead, your walk with him, might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So Paul's saying, I am resolving to speak in such a way, to act in such a way, to not entertain, to be very plain, to be very clear, and to call you to Christ because your faith must rest in him, not in anything man does. That you can still have a great walk with Christ if there were not as many hymns as you would prefer on Sunday. That you can still have a great walk and great enjoyment of Christ if the music was eh, a little bit too loud. That you could still have a great enjoyment and great walk with Christ if the sermon kind of droned on longer than you would anticipate, maybe like now. Does your faith rest in men or in the power of God? And here's, here's one way. If, if your enjoyment of Christ is dependent on a weekly sermon, you are malnourished. This is important. Weekly gathering is important. And Christians, I have never met a mature Christian who neglects the weekly gathering. I have met many immature and Christians who are on their way to apostasy who neglect the weekly gathering. They're everywhere. But if, if you're just relying on this one, 35 to 40 minute songs, you will become malnourished and Jesus will not remain central in your life. Are, are you here? Are you here this morning because your spouse? Because of your spouse? Are you here because the power of Christ risen from the dead? You mumble words as we sing, so you don't seem out of place. So everyone, so people, so it'll seem like you care. Or do you sing because you realize you have been made new by the power of the Spirit? Are you happy? This might be the most important one. Are you happy that you've been forgiven of all of your sins? And so you cannot wait to hear from the word of Christ. You cannot wait to sing songs. Not just, we're not just singing songs collectively to the sky. We're not singing to a screen. When we are singing, there is a risen Christ bodily with blood coursing through his veins, sitting at the right hand of the Father, and we're singing to him. We are singing directly to him, singing about him. And I love that in our, one of the songs we sang this morning, there was a present tense. It wasn't sin is strong, and Jesus was stronger. Because Jesus is not a pile of bone dust. He is alive and well. And we sing to him, Jesus, you are stronger. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is incredible and he is amazing. And so when you see Christ and him crucified and you go, that happened for me. 
That happened for all of my sins, and I am forgiven, and now I am so thrilled and so excited about Jesus. That is the power of God. What is better than Jesus? We are great sinners, but there is a great Savior. I am a huge sinner. It's un- I mean, you don't know my heart, but I'm freaked out sometimes by the sins that pop into my head. And I'm even more freaked out at the grace of God. So have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? I mean, really. When's the last time Jesus just blew you away? That you just sat and you thought, man, Jesus is awesome. Jesus is awesome. When's the last time you've, t- you've had the good stuff? Once you've had the good stuff, you don't want the lame stuff anymore. You just go, you pour the lame stuff out. Have you tasted and seen Jesus Christ and him crucified? And with the taste buds of faith, let's go to him and the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. If you're serving the Lord's Supper today, I invite you to come forward and band. You guys can come up as well. As we go to the Lord's Supper now, why don't we offer up prayers of confession? Of any known sins? Areas in our life where, maybe our whole life, where we have not decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Where Jesus is being eclipsed in our lives. Things that we are more concerned with than the kingdom of Christ. One thing we seek, O oh Lord, one thing we ask, that we may gaze upon you in your glory and dwell in the house of the Lord forever. For better is one day in your presence, O oh Lord, than 10,000 elsewhere. For it is good for us to be near God for the nearness of God is our good. And as we draw near to you, O Lord, you say in your word that you will draw near to us. So, Lord, we are coming near to the cross. And may you create here. You must do this, Lord. A church that is captivated by Christ. And that has a distaste for all that is not about him. That is repulsed by things that are nullifying the grace of God. Jesus, be our all. Do this among us, now for your glory, for your namesake. And it's in your awesome name that we pray, amen.